This is ground zero for the Christian year. The great vigil of Easter is the center of the church's worship. And flowing from it is the way in which we understand the rest of the liturgical year because we receive on the Easter vigil uh, the four parts of the, the Easter liturgy, the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy. So at the great vigil, I always pre- preach a little bit about these four things and set us up for moving forward during the great 50 days of Easter. So the first thing that we celebrate at the Easter vigil is the presence of the illuminative processes of God in the community of faith we call the church and internally in each of us, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. And that is symbolized by the presence of the Paschal candle. Does it look too crooked right now? Can you concentrate? It's a little out of whack, but that's all right. That's sort of like a a lot of our faith and belief, isn't it? A little out of whack. So maybe it's a good sign. So when we celebrate the presence of the light of Christ, it has to do with this divine light. Father Thomas Keating says that during Easter, we receive from God three great theological themes. God's light, God's life, and God's love. So the first part of the Easter liturgy is the lighting of the new fire, the lighting of the Paschal candle. For 50 days, the Paschal candle will be in the sanctuary And it will be a sign for us, like it was for the early church, of the pillar of fire in the wilderness leading the people of Israel, and also as an internal light which shines on our dark places, but also shows us internally those aspects of our character that are godly and that permit us to share with one another our practical wisdom about what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. The second part of the great or the, of the fourfold shape is the reading of the lessons from the Old Testament, the rehearsal of the history of salvation. I was thinking when I heard the story that Stephen Wells read of the creation that it, I wanted to say something about it just briefly, which I hope is not off the subject. But in this past year, I read a book by a... a, a Hebraist named John Walton, and he wrote a book about the creation stories. And he said a very important thing generically about the Bible. He said, you know, the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written for us. And what we read today, this this evening, was a story that wasn't even in our language. It's in Hebrew. And the people who wrote it knew exactly what they were talking about when they wrote it and what it meant. The creation story is not a scientific textbook. It was never intended to be a scientific textbook. It is written in Hebrew in the language of the temple. And it speaks of the whole of creation as God's place And we are in it with him. And when we think about that, 
the great narrative of the Hebrew Bible, the great narrative of the, what we call the Old Testament, provides us with the knowledge that as we as individuals and as a people recognize a care that God has for us, that we have a covenant with God that gets made between God and us, the knowledge that the world is a place that we have stewardship over and that our obligation or duty is to take care of it. So we read about the history of salvation with that idea in mind and the people of Israel, the people of the covenant, and Christians as they appropriated these scriptures as part of their sacred literature, began to realize that the story of the history of salvation is not just about obscure individuals in the past. It's about our own history. It's about our own history corporately, and it's about our own history personally. And so the biblical witness provides us with uh, some insight into the way in which God has continuously been present to his people. So if you think of the earth and you think of the world, think of it as the temple and God dwelling in the temple with us together. We celebrate baptism at the Easter Vigil. At one point in the church's life for the first 400 years, it was the only time of year baptism was ever done. So if we don't have baptisms on this evening, we renew our own baptismal vows. One of the great contributions of the liturgical renewal in the Western Church over the last 50 years has been the recovery of the centrality of baptism and the acknowledgement that at baptism we participate in a process which is not merely cosmic spot remover. It has something to do with how we receive the Holy Spirit of God. And that as Paul describes this, the Holy Spirit is now part of who we are. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So each of us are possessors of that spirit. And when we renew our vows, we renew the fact that we are close always to the presence of that spirit. And then, of course, we celebrate the Eucharist, the sacrament of Jesus' body and blood. So you have kind of a fourfold shape that begins with the narrative processes. And it ends in the sacramental processes of the church. And we celebrate the two dominical sacraments on this day, baptism and the Holy Eucharist and their importance that we are fed with this spiritual food and drink. Episcopalians have always uh, presumed, maybe not always correctly, but we have presumed that uh, we hope to have a mature approach to the Christian faith and life. And that means we uh, understand mystery in a way that is different uh, than many. M many people think mystery is something you can't know or you don't know. And mystery could be also understood as something that is infinitely knowable. And that's why, of course, Christians speaking about the way is an important thing because you and I are on the way all the time. 
we're following. And we're trying to make sense out of the journey and what it means. One of the things that uh, I've been reading recently again is Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal uh, said one thing that probably is a little scary, and that is, if the secrets of all human hearts were known, there would be no two friends in the world. <laughs> so let's put that one over here and say, uh, how do we understand what it is? And one of the things he said in his, somewhere in his writings was that um, if you're not sure you believe this, You also need to think about the fact that it's probably true. There was a bishop in the Anglican Church named William Butler who wrote a book called The Analogy of Religion in the 18th Century. And he said, Christianity is probably true. So it probably would be a good idea to practice it. And I mention this because I've been watching over and over again a YouTube video from the Veritas Forum at Harvard University, N.T. Wright, the... English biblical scholar Jay Harris, professor of Hebrew at the Harvard Divinity School, and Sean Kelly, the chair of the Department of Philosophy at Harvard, who would like to believe. He believes that there's things about Christianity uh, that are compelling. And he's coming to the belief in the fact that he, and he's teaching his students and things, that, you know, it's probably a good idea to cultivate practices that will help deepen your belief, even as feeble as it may be. So Easter's always a time to make a commercial message for practicing religion of one kind or another. It might help and it can't hurt. We all know about the hurt part, and people sometimes want to focus on that. But the benefit of saying, I'm going to engage now in practices that are bigger than I am. I became an Episcopalian in my late teens. And what I realized when I did that was that this thing was way bigger than me. It was way bigger than me. And some of that power has always been with me, that realization. Before, I thought it was all up to me. And when I realized the importance and power of the church as the means by which we have communicated to us the deep things of human existence. That's a compelling, compelling thing. So, give thanks for the divine light, the divine life, and the divine love, for God's presence among us, and for the opportunity to be instruments of God's light, life, and love to the world. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Lord, is risen indeed. Come on.